We've got two readings this morning, um, chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes, and then in the book of Acts, at chapter 4, reading at verse 32 to 37. So Ecclesiastes, let's hear the word of God. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Poor was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all labour and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbour. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. The fool folds his hands and ruins himself. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls of toil and chasing after the wind. Again I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Better a poor but wise youth than an old foolish king who no longer knows how to take warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them. But those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And then into Acts at chapter 4, starting at verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Amen. And God add his blessing to this reading from his word. Heavenly Father, as we now give our minds to this portion of your word, we do indeed need the light of your Holy Spirit. But this is our prayer because, Lord God, we do indeed want to walk in your ways. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, that in this act of worship, in considering your word, you would indeed shine that light, show us how we should live, a life that is so far from chasing after the wind, a life that is seeking, first of all, your righteousness, and your glory. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It is probably the cruelest of 
ironies that the technologies which were meant to bring people together have actually resulted in greater social isolation. Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram, so on and so on. Yes, they enable us to connect with people all over the globe, yet they also enable us to avoid personal contact, face-to-face contact with one another. And the pandemic has only exacerbated the situation. There are people who have not left their homes for the best part of four years. Or if they have, it's only been for the briefest of moments. It's no wonder then that loneliness has been described as the world's number one mental health problem. Now, it was an issue even before the pandemic, especially, but not exclusively, among the older generation. But now, even the young are manifesting what sociologists call signs of alienation. Alienation, that is, they feel disconnected from the world. They they don't feel that they belong anywhere. They've got no control over their lives, and therefore they are overwhelmed by that sense of meaninglessness and a lack of purpose. And, uh, of course, you know, in extreme cases, this can lead to extreme violence. I mean, how often do we hear on the news of a lone gunman with a sense of grievance against a, a school or an employer or just society in general? It was the Beatles who sang of all the lonely people. Now, loneliness is an experience that can hit all of us from time to time, that feeling of inner emptiness. You can be in a crowded room. You can be surrounded with all the dinner chatter and still feel lonely. You can be in the city centre. You're rubbing shoulders with hundreds of people and you still feel lonely. You don't have to be alone to feel lonely. And of course, we don't always feel lonely when we are alone. Uh, You might enjoy your own company. You might enjoy a wee bit of peace and quiet, but not for too long, thank you very much. In his exploration of life, our teacher now examines the causes of isolation and the negative effect that it has on humanity. He has been looking, he says, And what he saw was distressing. Indeed, there's there's a sense of lament about the opening verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 4. But that is not all. In his looking, he has also discovered the cure for loneliness. The cure indeed for that dangerous condition of alienation. Because in verse 9, he uses that word better. Two are better than one. Whether it's in the workplace or on a journey or at home, companionship is better than isolation. And in this, our teacher is both looking backwards and looking forwards. He's looking back to creation itself, where God declared it is not good for the man to be alone. But he is also looking forwards to the creation of the church, the community of God's people. 
The spirit among the first Christians was one of meeting together for worship, to pray, to break bread together, ensuring that none of their members was in need. And it is no coincidence that many of the metaphors used to describe the church are collective. The church is a vine of which we are the branches. It is a building formed from many bricks that are joined together. The church is a body comprising of many parts. Ultimately, the church is a family with God as our Father. And so the church is the model that society should follow, not the other way around. The church can never be a collection of individuals doing their own thing. If we are all united to Christ, then we are all united to one another. And that is why, like many of my colleagues that I speak to, I am concerned about those who choose to stay at home and watch a church service from home. Now, live streaming our services has become a godsend to the housebound and to the sick. And we don't want live streaming to stop. But to choose to stay at home and to isolate yourself from your church family it demonstrates an unhealthy attitude towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. It deprives you of fellowship and it robs us of your presence. So let's do some looking ourselves. First of all, it's some of the causes of isolation and alienation and then the benefits of life in community. Chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors, and they have no comforter. Now, when we think of oppression, we might think of those totalitarian states like North Korea, where any dissent against the government is crushed mercilessly. But in the Old Testament, the primary manifestation of oppression was economic. Economic rather than political. <coughs> Listen to these three verses. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 13. Do not defraud your neighbor or rob him. Do not hold back the wages of a hired man overnight. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 14 through to 15. Do not take advantage of a hired man who is poor and needy, whether he is a brother Israelite or an alien living in one of your own towns. Pay him his wages each day before sunset, because he is poor and is counting on it. And then in Proverbs 14, verse 31. He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honours God. Having listened to those verses, I think we are immediately propelled into a world of oppression that we are actually familiar with. One aspect of the post office scandal is the way that those who were accused of misappropriating funds were told they were the only ones claiming to have a problem with the horizon system, when in fact there were hundreds of them, hundreds of others in the same boat. 
that sense of isolation must have been horrendous. How can the wee guy take on the might of the post office? And as you know, not only did people lose their savings and their homes, they lost their reputation. Some were ostracized within their villages. They were shunned by their neighbors. A few could not live with the shame. It's only when the victims of this fraud got together and started to campaign as a group that the world began to take notice. Perhaps you have to have suffered at the hands of the government or of big business to appreciate our teacher's sentiment when he says in verse 2, And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. He is actually congratulating. He is saluting. He is commending the dead and the unborn for managing to avoid the evil that characterizes this world. Oppression. A second cause of isolation is an aggressive competitive spirit. A teacher says in verse 4, And I saw that all the labor and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. Now, the competitive spirit is vital for progress, isn't it? All sport is based on the competitive spirit. Nobody believes the sportsman when he says that, oh, it's just taking part that really matters. No, he's out to win. He's out to break the world record. He's out to be top of the league. Do you remember that for a while there was a fad amongst educationalists that competition was bad for children? Do you remember that? You know, it lowered the self-esteem of, of those who never win. Now, of course, with little children, yes, everybody's a winner. But with older kids, it just doesn't work. It saps their sense to do well. It, it, why should they be applying themselves if, if, uh, if the lazy ones are going to get a prize as well? Uh, and, of course, our whole capitalist system of economics is based on competition. We reward those who work the hardest to produce the product that we all want at the cheapest price. That's the reason why communism collapsed. It wasn't because we had more nuclear weapons than them. It's because we had better cars and better TVs and better fridges. Communism dampens the spirit of competition. There's no incentive to manufacture products of a high quality. We need the competitive spirit, but we have to be careful. Because there's a downside to all this. The competitive spirit can be a killer. The drive to win the drive to achieve, the drive to be the undisputed champion of the world can become a god. It can become all-absorbing. It can be your sole reason for living. In business, it can lead to cutting corners. Maybe some creative accounting. In our own personal lives, it can cause us to use other people for our own ends, disposing of them when their usefulness is over. And of course, when others get wise to this, it's no wonder that they cut us out of their lives. A life fueled by envy is a chasing after the wind. 
And isn't it significant? Did you notice this? Isn't it significant that our teacher says that it is envy of our neighbor? Envy of our neighbor. Doesn't the Tenth Commandment tell us not to covet anything of our neighbors? Keeping up with the Joneses may be a cliche. But for many people, it motivates their every decision. Now, you're listening to all this, and maybe you come along and you say, well, here's a proverb straight out of the book of Proverbs, verse 5. The fool folds his hands and ruins himself. Laziness and poverty go hand in hand, you might say. But our teacher comes up with an alternative proverb in verse 6. He says, all oh, right, okay, but better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. And isn't it true that more and more of us are realizing that there is more to life than work, 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 work? One handful is better than two handfuls. If it means I get to spend more time with the family. After all, whoever said on their deathbed, I wish I'd spent more time in the office. Now, aggressive competitiveness is not the only engine behind that workaholic attitude. Sometimes it's just sheer greed. Just sheer greed. And so our teacher has observed something that leaves him scratching his head. The man who works all the hours, but still never has enough. He cannot even say that he's doing it for his family, so that his children can have the best that money can buy. Because he doesn't have any family. There it is in verse 8. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. His eyes were bigger than his wallet. Now, perhaps it is as a result of his loneliness that he buries himself in his work. And when he takes time to stop and think, he asks himself, what's all this for? For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? Who's he making money for? He's got nobody to spend it on. Work and wealth are no substitute for love and companionship. There is another way of looking at this, of course. Perhaps his singleness was as a result of being a workaholic, that he had no time to cultivate loving relationships. And it reminds us of our Lord's parable of the rich fool, the farmer who enjoyed such a bumper harvest that he didn't have enough room in his barns to store it all. And instead of sharing his good fortune with others, he decided to hoard the grain and live off the profits. Only that very night he passed into eternity. And the question is, then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Friends, if God in his grace has given us more than we need for ourselves, then his purpose is that we should share our surplus and use it to benefit others. 
Now, the first Christians understood this. We read in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 34. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had as he had need. I also point you to 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is encouraging the Corinthian Christians to give generously towards his collection for the church in Jerusalem, where there was a famine. And he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 14, At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. If we have more than we need, it's not for storing up, it's for giving away. Now here's my last observation. The isolation of power. In verses 13 through to 16, the teacher tells us a story. He says there was an old king. And like so many who have been power for too long, he isolated himself. And he, knew, he no longer knew how to take advice. His self-made loneliness was compounded by the growing popularity of a young rival. And we might say this rival had gone from log cabin to White House or from council estate to Downing Street. It says in verse 15, I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. But then this youth also lost his popularity. He fell from favour and became as lonely as the old king whom he had toppled. And so, says our teacher, life was no more than a meaningless vapour. If it's lonely at the top, it's even lonelier at the bottom. Economic oppression, aggressive competitiveness, compulsive greed... The isolation of power. Truly, my friends, there is nothing new under the sun, is there? Each one of these attitudes is alive and well in 21st century Scotland, isn't it? You could probably apply them to, to some people that you know. You may even recognize yourself in some of them. You see, isolation is not only a mental health problem, it is a spiritual problem. It is a spiritual problem. Sin is an isolating force. Sin is an isolating force. It begins in the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? With Adam and Eve believing that they can be like God. So they eat the forbidden fruit and almost instantly that uncoupling begins as they blame each other for the disobedience. And not only are they estranged from each other, they're estranged from God. First of all, they hide from God and then he has to expel them from the garden. And it continues, Cain and, Eve, Cain and Abel. Cain's envy of Abel leads him to, to murder his brother. And we read on in the story and the, the, the human community slides into chaos and anarchy so that we read in Genesis chapter 6 that violence covered the earth. But God has a plan. 
a plan to restore harmony between neighbor and neighbor. So there's one man, Abraham, and he is called by God. And he is given this promise that he will become a great nation and that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through him. And in time that promise is fulfilled as the nation of Israel emerges. A nation that is to be characterized by justice and righteousness. Whose God-given laws, and I read three of them to you earlier on, God's given laws are designed to prevent the oppression of the poor and the vulnerable. Aggressive competitiveness and compulsive greed are circumvented. They're circumvented by the year of Jubilee. So that if you have mortgaged your family's land, it is returned to you every 50 years. Even the kings had their power reined in. But as you know, the people of Israel didn't listen. And we should not ignore the fact that so much of the prophet's preaching was aimed at economic oppression, not just idolatry. In fact, the two go hand in hand. And that's why when the Lord Jesus declared in that synagogue in Nazareth that he had come to preach good news to the poor, we shouldn't just interpret that as the spiritually poor. Not just the spiritually poor, because spiritual renewal leads to economic renewal. Spiritual renewal leads to economic renewal. Now, there's probably no greater example of this than Zacchaeus. You know the story, don't you? His greed had estranged him from his neighbors. Remember how they closed ranks so that he couldn't see through the, cr- the crowd to see Jesus. But having encountered Jesus, this avaricious little tax collector not only restores all that he had stolen four times over, he gives away half his fortune. He gives away half his fortune. And you know, we shouldn't miss that little comment by Jesus at the end of the story. He says, truly salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. In other words, Jesus is saying to the people of Jericho, Zacchaeus' family, he too is a son of Abraham. Zacchaeus' family. On one occasion, when the Lord Jesus was preaching in a house, he was told that his mother and brothers were outside looking for him. And you know, his reply astonished his listeners. They still do. They still astonish us. In Mark chapter 3, verse 33 and 34, we read, Jesus says, Who are my mother and my brothers? Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister. And mother. Friends, the church is Christ's cure for loneliness. The church is where aggressive competitiveness, compulsive greed, and self serving power are banished as we follow the better way, 
the better way. And friends, does it not oblige us here in Hope Church to take a good long look at ourselves? How aware are we of one another's circumstances? Are we in a position to help somebody who is struggling? Struggling spiritually? Struggling emotionally? Even struggling financially? How inclusive are we of those who are on their own? Now I hear, I hear of visits to the housebound and of lifts to the hospital and of invitations for dinner. And let me tell you, I thank God that I am pastor of such a congregation. But compared to the first Christians, how are we doing? How are we doing? All the lonely people, where do they all come from? Well, they come from life lived under the sun. That phrase that speaks to us of life lived without God. But above the sun, my friends, above the sun there is a God who exists in Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A community of three. And friends, it is living in communion with that community of three that we find meaning and purpose and identity as we worship and learn and grow together. Let's pray. We bow before you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one God in three persons. We thank you for that community of love. And we pray, Lord God, that you would enable us to live as your people in a community of love for one another. O oh, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would drop your still dews of quietness till all our striving cease. Take from us the strain and stress and let our ordered lives confess the beauty of your peace. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.